calling uh, Waiting Room. And if you haven't been here uh, in a while or for a few weeks, it might feel today like you're coming into the middle of a movie. Uh, but the good news is if you want to get caught up or if you uh, fall asleep this morning and uh, you wonder, you laugh like that never happens. <laughs> uh, you, that might actually, and they think they have an excuse. Yeah, exactly. Um, we are gonna, we're going to recap uh, our experience at Relay and maybe next week or the following week. Um, if you need to get caught up, you missed a session somewhere because this is part, um, I think it's Three, thank you. I don't, see, I don't know. I'm in the middle of the movie, too. I didn't even know. It's part three. So if you need to get caught up, you can do that on our website at faithcommunityfellowship.com. By the way, we just launched a brand new design of our website in the last couple of weeks. So if you haven't checked that out, I encourage you to. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast, and you can get all caught up. Um, some people have asked me, why don't we do video of our services? Why don't we do video of our messages, at least? Uh, you know, put them on our YouTube channel or on our media player. Um, there's a simple reason for that. Um, we don't feel like we're at a place yet where uh, we can do that with excellence. And so to do a quality video you need that you would want to watch. And lots of churches post video, but a lot of it's stuff that I can't make myself, I can't watch. Uh, and this is me. But you need a couple cameras, you need good lighting, you need a separate audio mix, you need uh, some post-production gear. Uh, you need the time, you need the personnel to make that happen. Uh, sometimes those things are about... ROI, return on investment, so investment of time and resources. So we'd have to get, in my mind, have to get more than a dozen views to make all of that worthwhile. So we made the shift to focusing on our podcast and our audio when we realized we were getting 75 to 100 listens every week on that platform. So that makes it worthwhile. So um, it'll come, but we're going to do it. We can do more than a single camera. We're, instead of a one static camera shot in tight, my face, elbows up, you really want to watch that for 45 minutes? You know, at least here you can look around, you can look at the lights, you can count the ceiling tiles and all that. You can, be, you can watch the people who get up and go to the bathroom four times. You can watch all that. But if you're locked in on a face shot for 45 minutes, who, I know, I, I don't want to watch that. So anyway, for now we're focusing on the audio product. So I want to kind of walk you through, I've been talking about this for a while, I want to talk, walk you through my, my uh, tutorial on how to, how to listen to a podcast, okay? So if you have an iPhone, if you have an iPhone, any version of it. Wow, okay. Did you know that the podcast app comes pre-installed? In fact, if your phone's old enough and your operating system's old enough, you can't even delete it. Um, so I use, I use iTunes. And uh, so if you just go to whatever, you're, and if you use an Android, you can download a podcast app. I don't know which one. Which one, you guys? What is it? Podcast Republic. I have heard of that one. Um, so um, anyway, you go to your podcast app and you search, go to the search thing there, and then you search Faith Community Fellowship. You're going to get more than one. Somebody, st some churches have stolen our name. We can't help it that we're trendsetters. We can't help it. We didn't set out to do that, but no. Uh, so I, I kind of grayed out the one that you don't need. I don't even know anything about that. Maybe you'll get some good content there. But the one, you know, Ellsworth, Maine, you'll recognize that, right? And uh, you click on that, and then you go to this screen. And what do you think you're going to do here? What button are you going to hit? Subscribe, of course or Christianity, because you're like, yeah, I'd like to be a Christian. Uh, <laughs> congratulations. Uh, hit subscribe, and uh, then it takes you to our list of, of podcasts. Once you, here's the deal. If you haven't subscribed, you only get to see about 30 of our episodes. If you've subscribed, you get to see every one of them. We've been, we've been podcasting for about four years. Um, so you just pick on the one you want. So there I picked uh, Waiting Room Part 2, and that's the screen you get as you're listening. Here's the thing I love about... Uh, Podcasting. Like if you're listening to a CD and you're listening to it in the car, 
and you, depending on your stereo, you turn the car off. You come back, you've got to start from the beginning again because um, our CDs are all one track. But you're listening to a podcast and you've got seven minutes between point A and point B. You can listen to seven minutes, come back after you're done and pick up where you left off. So um, that's, oh, and then you get these. You get these notifications every time. Any podcast you've subscribed to, you can set notifications. So um, you get notifications when FCF has posted a new podcast. And you're like, oh, I need to change, change my whole calendar for the day and listen to this right now. So you'll want to know, I know. So that's my podcast tutorial. That was free. Next time, if you need a refresher, it'll cost you a little something. So um, that's that. If the content today catches you a little off guard, if you're like, I wasn't expecting that, uh, if you go back and listen to parts one and two, that's why I talked about this, you'll get some context for what I'm going to say today because this is all like a, a multi-part conversation and almost none of these messages really stand alone without the rest of, of the conversation. So that's why I took the time to walk you through that. Uh, so basically what the series is about that we're calling Waiting Room, we're trying to answer the question, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? And what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when you find yourself in a circumstance or a season of life and there's really no way forward? There's no way out. What do you do? It's a relationship, and it's not really going anywhere. You're married, and it's not going in the direction that you want it to go in. You just feel stuck. Or you're single, and there are no good prospects on the horizon, and you really thought you'd be married at this stage of life, and you could, you could settle, you know, but there just doesn't seem to be a good option for you anyway, uh, anywhere. And you've even tried the church scene and tried to get as many, in as many church environments as possible, hoping to meet somebody, because, like, wouldn't the church be the optimal place to find a spouse? Because people in the church have their stuff together, right? So why, think, why, why isn't this happening for me? What do you do? What do you do uh, financially? when things aren't going well and you can't uh, get caught up, uh, never mind ever getting ahead, uh, never mind reaching some level of stability and security, and things aren't going well there, and there's no way out, what do you do? Um, what, if, what if financially, I don't know if this has been your, part of your story, but you realize, you come to a point you realize you're never going to be where you thought you were going to be. And your only options are bad options, and some of your options might be legal, but they aren't necessarily ethical or moral. And you're just kind of stuck. What do you do with that when there's nothing you can do? Get a bad report from your doctor, whatever it is. Maybe it's not going to kill you, but it's going to change your lifestyle. And there's no way to make it better. It's just going to slow you down. It's a new status that you find yourself in. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Maybe it's an education thing. Maybe it's about your career. You had a big plan for your career in a certain field, and then you made some decisions that affected your ability to get the education that you needed to get to have that career, and you didn't see the connection at first. Then you discovered you couldn't get into certain schools, or maybe you did get in, and didn't realize that you had to study, and uh, you had to apply yourself. Oh, some of you have been there. Okay, got it. And, you know, whether you passed or not mattered. And, and actually, then you discovered whether you passed or not, whether you got any credits or not, you still had to pay for it, and you're still paying for it. Yeah, and you're, you're stuck, and you're stuck in a job where you don't see much future. What do, you, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? There's always a temptation to run. There's always a temptation to abandon whatever. There's always a temptation to do something stupid or to drink till you pass out every night or whatever it takes to get through. But again, those things create a different set of problems, right? Some of you have been there and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes we find ourselves at a place where we look around and we're a little bit jealous because it just seems that in general, no matter where we look, everybody else's life seems a little more perfect than yours, right? 
And social media is great at this. It's like you get the highlight reel on Facebook and Instagram. And we even post our own highlight reels, don't we, of our lives. We post the things we want people to see. But we know that the reality of our lives is far from what we let other people see. And it's a season of life where maybe things aren't really going that well for you. And other people's successes are exaggerated. And our own failures are exaggerated. And it's easy to get jealous and to get resentful and even to get angry. And if you're a Christian, or at the very least, let's say you're a theist, okay? You believe there's a God, you're not sure that you can relate to him or how personal he is, but he's out there somewhere. At some point, you kind of shake your fist at God because you've decided if God was who he was supposed to be, if he really was who he was presented to you to be, then God would have done something about this. And God seems to make everyone else's life wrinkle-free. He could have made your life a little less wrinkly, you know, but he didn't. So at some point, this kind of comes back to it must be God's fault. So what do you do when there's nothing you can do? I think at the emotional level, where this all lands for us, we, we all get to the place at some point along the way where we begin to think, I'll never be happy again. Nothing good can come from this. Don't, so Todd, don't get up there and try to tell me something good's going to come from this and misquote some scripture because you might want to hide behind that podium because if I were to get up there and tell my story, I think we'd all agree that nothing good can come from this. And you look at your circumstances and you think there's no happy ending here. There's no silver lining here. Nothing good can come from this. Oh, and then at the far end of the continuum, you get to the point where there's just, you think there's no point in continuing. There's no point in staying in this marriage. There's no point in staying in this relationship. There's no point in making decisions around any kind of moral code. There's no point in being ethical. There's no point in trying to do the right thing all the time, hoping that the right thing will happen as a result of me doing the right thing all the time. And there's just no point in continuing. And yeah, there are some options, but I know they would just make my life more complicated. Uh, so I'm sick and tired of the status quo. So what do I do? Well, in part one a month ago, we went to the heart of the emotion um, to the heart of the theological tension that we feel in the waiting room experiences of life. And we discovered that adversity does not indicate God's absence. Adversity does not mean God is absent. The way we said it in part one in the waiting room experience is that God is not absent, God is not apathetic, and God is not angry. And we need to get our brains around that. Because it's easy to draw the conclusion because of what's going on in our lives, either God is absent or God is apathetic, he just doesn't care, or God is angry. Somehow he's punishing me. <clears throat> then last time in part two, a couple weeks ago, we dove into one of the greatest mysteries of all of Christianity. And the response to that message was really interesting. Some people were like, that was really interesting. I'd never heard that before. Some people have been avoiding me since then. Like, we had a barbecue that day, and some people wouldn't make eye contact me, with me in the food line. Like, they were like, dude, you are so, like, you're on the border of heresy here because I don't know what you're talking about anymore. They're pretty sure what I said wasn't true. They definitely disagreed with me, um, whether what I said was untrue or whether, listen, it was simply different uh, from what they've been taught all their lives. That's a possibility. Because in part two, we discovered that if you're a Christian, you have the option this is weird. You have the option to view your adversity, to view this waiting room experience as a gift from your heavenly father that has both a purpose and a promise. And the purpose is usually yet to be revealed. It's rare to know the purpose in the moment, uh, but the promise is that God's grace is sufficient for that situation. So you have the option. And listen, it's not a biblical mandate. It's not required. 
but you have the option to view the adversity as if it were, and I'm not even saying it is, but to view it as if it were a gift from your Heavenly Father with a purpose and a promise. I know it's a little bit disruptive, doesn't always fit with the idea that, you know, if you have enough faith, God will change your circumstances. I don't know if you've ever heard any teaching like that. I, I know it doesn't fit with the idea that God wants you to be happy, so just hang in there, it'll get better. Or God wants you to have a $54 million jet to add to your fleet, just to send me some money. Sorry, well, I knew I'd find a way to work that one in. Uh, <laughs> Oh, just stay with your notes, Todd. God wants you to, you know, the, the idea that God wants you to be happy so it'll get better. I love this one. God wants you to be happy. So in his time, man, that is just not Bible. I've heard, in his time, he'll bring the right person into your life. He'll bring the person that he's chosen for you into your life so that you can be happy. Not a biblical concept. God wants you to be happy, so just keep honoring him with the way that you do your work life and all of that, and you'll get the promotion. I don't know where we get this stuff. And I know that some of the things that I've said so far uh, don't fit with any, doesn't fit with any of that because I'm convinced that none of that kind of stuff is actually biblical. And if you think I'm off on that, you're like, but I heard it on the radio and, and I read it in a book and so-and-so, I, I love this song that says this and it makes me feel good and I get warm fuzzies. If you think I'm wrong on this, I would, I would love to have coffee with you and have a conversation about that and bring your Bible because I'd like to know where it comes from. Um, so, challenges out there. <laughs> I acknowledge I have pet peeves. I've got issues, okay? Um, <laughs> One of my biggest pet peeves is when we make the Bible say things it doesn't say, and when we make it not say things it does say, when we make God into something he never presented himself to be. Um, yeah, so. Um, one of the things, I need to keep going. One of the things that's helpful to do when you think about adversity, and when you think about these waiting room experiences, those circumstances where there's, you're just wondering, you know, what do I do? What do I do when there's nothing I can do? Is to remember this, that the men and women who brought us the Bible, the story, especially the, like the story of the New Testament, the, who brought us the gospel message of Jesus, these are men and women who were not strangers to adversity and disappointment. In fact, when you read their stories and you come to know their stories and you realize that conflict was just a part of their lives, adversity and disappointment and waiting was just a part of their lives. And some, uh, those seasons of life where, where there's nothing uh, you can do was just part of their lives. And unlike us, unlike us, like we have to understand our own context. Unlike us 21st century Westerners, I mean, we are, not everybody in the world thinks like us. And we're like, yeah, they're so wrong. No, listen. For those of us who think like New World Westerners, that's who we are. We have this conflict sometimes between the idea of there being a good God and the presence of adversity and conflict and disappointment and loss. We think there's a conflict. But the men and women who brought us the story of Jesus and made sure that his message made it out of the first century, they were not strangers to this conflict. And they were not put off and their faith was not disrupted by conflict. They didn't see it as a contradiction at all. And their lives were full of turmoil and difficulty. So, I mean, last time in part two, uh, we saw this with the Apostle Paul. And we saw that Paul, the man who was responsible, basically, for taking the gospel and bringing it to people other than Jewish people, people like us. And the man who almost single-handedly planted all these churches along 
the Mediterranean realm that would eventually create the church that we're part of 2,000 years later. The Apostle Paul had a situation in his life that was painful, humiliating, debilitating, and permanent. And he said, God, would you uh, remove this? And God said no. And somehow, Paul went on with his life and with his ministry and with his call on his life. Somehow, the Apostle Paul, while dealing with something that was painful, hum- humiliating, debilitating, and permanent, that somehow that did not cause him to abandon his confidence in God. Somehow, he was able to continue to believe that in God and all of who God was and move on with his life. For him, there was no contradiction, there was no conflict. He was able to live in that waiting room experience where there was nothing he could do, and still he did amazing, amazing things. So not only did he teach us what we learned a couple weeks ago, that Paul makes this incredibly bold statement. This is where we want to kind of park for a little while today. Because he also said that even in the midst of our most incredible adversity, like he said for himself, in his most intense adversity, he was able to find contentment. Do you know what contentment is? Contentment is somehow everything on the inside is at peace, even when everything on the outside is going crazy. Contentment is the ability to stop striving internally when things on the outside are out of control. The Apostle Paul said that in Christ there's an element, there's a way to experience contentment even when you have no control over what's going on in your life. Now, real quick, a little background on Paul, because this is really important, especially if you're new to Bible study or you're a little suspect of the Bible. Here's something we need to understand about the Apostle Paul. Because um, as you probably know, I mean, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, Paul steps onto the pages of history as a person who hates Christians and is determined to eradicate Christianity in the early days. So as part of his job as a Pharisee and as a defender of Judaism, uh, he, he's authorized by all the necessary uh, authorities to silence Christians using whatever means necessary, whether that's imprisonment or torture or even executing them. And just as he's hitting his stride as the exterminator of the first Christians, while he's on his way to take care of even more Christians, he has an encounter with Jesus. And you should read that story in Acts chapter 9. And he becomes a Christian himself. And to say he becomes a Christian sounds like an understatement. He's the Apostle Paul. He launches into this incredible... uh, missionary endeavor, where he's planting churches all over the place, including these Gentile cities. So the story of Paul in the New Testament begins in Acts 7, where he's overseeing the execution of Christianity's first martyr, whose name was Stephen, right. And in the next chapter, it says that Saul, which was simply his Jewish name, God didn't change his name, it was just his Jewish name, he approved, it says he approved of the killing of Stephen. And then it says, he set out to destroy the church. That's in Acts 7 and Acts 8, and then in Acts 9, everything changes. A complete 180 as he becomes a follower of Jesus. And the rest of the book of Acts follows the ministry of, the, of Paul the Apostle. About 10 years into his ministry, which has become this massive regional ministry, anybody needed another jet in his fleet, it was Paul. And the Apostle Paul is arrested, and he ends up in Rome, where he's placed under house arrest for, for two years while he's awaiting trial. And as you may know from your history of, you know, history of civilization classes or something like that, or world history, the Roman emperor at the time was, was named Nero. How many of you ever heard of Nero? You knew the answer, you just weren't going to play along. Okay. To be a Christian in Rome, under arrest, with Nero as the emperor, 
Not a good combination of circumstances, okay? Because Nero was known to light his gardens at night with the burning bodies of Christians. Nero blamed the Christians for everything that was going wrong in the empire. So here's the Apostle Paul. Jesus appeared to him. That's pretty cool. He called him to be an apostle. He's going to change the world. His ministry has gained traction all over the Mediterranean rim. He's under arrest now in Rome, and it appears that Rome won, Jesus lost. It looks like game over for this one. Uh, Here's the guy who was given the responsibility for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Now he's not only under arrest, he's under arrest in Rome, and Nero is the emperor. Here's the really cool part. He's a really ambitious guy. Everything he does, he does all the way. He's an all-in kind of guy, and he has nothing to do because he can't go anywhere. And he decides, it's driving him crazy. He's like, I'm not going to waste my time here just because I can't go anywhere. I'm going to write some letters. Little did he know that he was writing some of the most widely read and most widely translated words that have ever been written. In his mind, he's thinking, there's nothing else I can do. I'm stuck here. I, don't, I, I can't do the thing God has called me to do. So, and who knows how long I'm going to be here. So while I'm here, I'm just going to make the best of it and write a few letters to some of my friends in those cities where we've planted churches. And he wrote to the church in Ephesus. We call it, we know it as the book of Ephesians. And he wrote to the church in Colossae and Philippi, the books of Colossians and Philippians. And he wrote to his close friend Philemon. And these are known as the prison epistles. And this is what I want us to understand because it's going to get really practical for all of us in just a minute. In his mind, He's just doing what he can do because there's nothing else I can do. I'll just do this until the thing that I really want to do, the thing that God's called me to do, until I'm able to do that. But in reality, he's changing the world. He's changing the way people view God. He's changing the way people like us view a relationship with God. He's writing literature that would ultimately be part of undermining the Roman emperor, the Roman Empire. And in fact, what he wrote uh, would be so well read and so widely published that it would become part of the language of culture in multiple languages. And through his writings, the Apostle Paul arguably had more to do with shaping culture than anyone who ever lived up until the printing press. And interestingly, even with the printing press, remember who invented the movable type printing press? Are you sure? Okay, it wasn't Mr. Xerox. (laughs) Jan Gutenberg. First recorded work to come off the printing press in its entirety was the Bible. And of course, included in that Bible were the writings of the Apostle Paul. And many of them written when he was in a waiting room experience. It's incredible. He may not have thought about it that way, but I think it's incredible. One of the letters that Paul wrote uh, while he was in prison is the letter to the church in Ephesus. We call it Ephesians. And in that letter, he says things like, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He gave his life for the church, Paul says. Husbands, be willing to give your lives for your wife. Give your ambitions and your selfish desires. Give that up for the sake of your wife. Wives, aren't you glad that Paul uh, went to prison so he could write that? You know, it's like the, I mean, that was, that was, that was paradigm shifting kind of stuff then and now. So much of this world-changing, contrarian, paradigm-shifting, theological literature was written during times of extraordinary adversity. And here's the point, and this is a big deal. Paul had no idea. Paul had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to remain faithful 
when remaining faithful was difficult. He had no idea. He had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to continue to follow Jesus when the circumstances were working against him. Paul had no idea what God was up to through his willingness to do what he could do in very trying and limiting circumstances. He's just sitting there writing. In some cases, because of his poor eyesight, he's dictating. He's got some other prisoner writing the stuff down for him, and he's going to, I don't know, give him his breakfast in exchange for doing that or something. I don't know how he got people to cooperate, but he just thinks, I've got nothing else to do. What else can I do? It isn't much, but I'll just write some letters. Oh, and here's another thing that blows my mind. What are the odds? Think about this. What are the odds that letters written in Rome while under house arrest, what are the odds that they would ever make it, first of all, out of the prison, much less actually make it to their intended destination hundreds of miles away. In the case of, of the church of Philippi, it was 800 miles away if you took a boat across the Adriatic Sea. It's 1,200 miles if you went by land. I mean, what are the chances of that? I, just a few weeks ago, I waited 10 days for a piece of mail to come from Auburn, Maine. <laughs> 10 days! I swear it went through Philippi to get here. <laughs> things that emperors wrote, things that emperors dictated and decreed didn't always make it to the intended recipients and have since been long lost. But Paul's a prisoner, hasn't even stood trial yet. He writes one copy of these letters, says to someone, deliver this, and we're still reading it today. He had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to remain faithful to the call of God in his life and to do what he was able to do. Do you know what hung in the balance? We hung in the balance. The church hung in the balance. And the reason he was able to accomplish what he did was because of his adversity and because of his response to his situation in the waiting room. Here's why it's a big deal, and if you've kind of zoned out for a minute, come back to me, because here's why this matters. You and I have no idea what or who hangs in the balance of our decision to remain faithful when everything around you says it's time to walk away. We have no idea. You have no idea what God might be up to through your faithfulness and everything around you says, you know, there's no point in being ethical. There's no point in being moral. There's no point in waiting any longer. There's no point in staying. There's no point in telling the truth. There's no point in being obedient. There's no point in doing the right thing. There's no point in saying yes to God because just, there's just no winning here. I'm just stuck. I've been stuck here forever. I've been waiting for God to answer my prayer and he doesn't seem to be listening and God certainly isn't coming through for me. Somebody needs to do something. I might as well go ahead. You have no idea. Who or what hangs in the balance? And the challenge is, we'll probably never know. We've all lived long enough to know and realize, that, even though we don't always act and make decisions accordingly, but we know that it's actually in the context of adversity that God does the most amazing things in us and through us. So when you find yourself, like maybe some of you are right now, in a waiting room set of circumstances, God is not absent, God is not apathetic, God is not angry, God is oftentimes at work. And the worst thing we can possibly do is to hit the eject button and bail on the process. Instead of saying, God, I wouldn't choose this for me, I wouldn't choose this for anybody, but here I am, here I am, so teach me what it means to be content in these circumstances, right here in this waiting room. One of the letters that he wrote in prison, the letter to the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul addresses this issue of contentment. One of my favorite passages that he wrote. 
Remember, he's writing to real people in a real church in a real city, the city of Philippi. Philippi is on the northern tip of the Aegean Sea. It's just south of the border of Bulgaria. It's a real city, real people, real church. Here's what he writes to the Christians in Philippi. This is Philippians chapter 4. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, we're going to put it on the screen too. But we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, a few verses here. We're going to start with verse 10. And this is not at all where this whole path, you've got to read the whole chapter really to get the whole context. But we're going to start with verse 10. It says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So here's what happened. The Apostle Paul is under arrest. They didn't have high-speed wireless internet back then. They're still using dial-up, so word travels pretty slow. And finally, like, he's still got an AOL account and all that. So finally, the Christians in Philippi get word that their guy, the guy who was so instrumental in this church in Philippi, was under arrest and sitting in prison in Rome. They hadn't even charged him with anything. They hadn't figured out what to do with him yet. They're just holding him until they come up with something. So they find this out, and they send him a care package. And you can imagine how long that took to arrive in Rome, several hundred miles away, and what kind of condition it might have been in. But eventually, this care package shows up from his friends in Philippi, and he's like, wow, they didn't forget about me. So he writes in this letter, he says, I'm so glad that you showed your concern for me. He's just so grateful, and he uses this as a launching point to talk about this big, big concept, this word contentment. Verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this, because I'm in need. In other words, I'm glad you sent me the care package. I'm glad you remembered me. I'm glad you're praying for me. I'm glad you're concerned about my well-being. But don't get me wrong. I'm not glad because I was afraid. I'm not get glad because I'm losing my mind here. I'm not glad because I'm overwhelmed with anxiety. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned. <coughs> Took some time. He said, I have learned to process. I have learned, so obviously it's not natural. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Let's just stop and think about that for a second. How are we doing on that lesson? The idea of contentment basically means you know, I've learned not to let this drag me down and derail me. I've learned to live in such a way that even though things around me are uncertain, I'm not stressing out, I'm not r- running from it, I'm not coming up with my own solutions. Now, quick we are to do that. He said, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, if I were to stop right now and close in prayer, um, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I mean, I want to know more. Like, okay, you learn to be content. Let's, let's, let's hear the lesson, Paul. I want to hear this. If there's a way to learn how to be content in any kind of circumstances, and we're not talking about happiness. Like, well, this is, God wants me to be happy. Um, but whatever the circumstances... <laughs> Circumstances that have no, we have no control over. If there's a way on the inside to be okay when things on the outside are not okay, I, I want to learn that. I want to learn that. Where's the class for that? I will sign up for that one. Where's the sign-up sheet? We'll have it out in the lobby. Paul says, I just want you to know I'm okay. I've learned to be content. So yeah, that exists. There's a category of contentment that works in all circumstances. Now, is it just me, or, or does this make you want to lean in a little bit? Like, tell me what it is, Paul. What's the secret? So what this means is that in the waiting room, when you find yourself in a set of circumstances where there's no way forward, and there's no way out, and there's nothing you can do, uh, it's just, it is what it is, that there's a way to be content. And this isn't about apathy. This isn't about, well, I just stopped caring a long time ago. Paul was not apathetic. 
Paul was not a whatever kind of guy. It's like in spite of my personality, you know, in spite of my drive, in spite of my ambition, in spite of my circumstances, I have learned how to be content. He goes on, verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. So he's, I've had more than I needed, and I didn't get addicted to having more than I needed so that when I was in need, I would be unhappy. I've learned to navigate having a lot. I've learned to navigate not having enough. Having a lot didn't wreck my contentment. Having less hasn't wrecked my contentment. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This is really cool. In the Greek text, Uh, the Apostle Paul reaches outside of biblical literature and he grabs a word that doesn't show up anywhere else uh, in the entire New Testament, uh, but it's a word that comes from his culture. And the reason this is important is that if you're having a conversation with somebody, uh, let's say you're having a conversation with someone at work or maybe even at home, and you use like a big six-syllable word that's unusual for you, don't people respond to like, oh, someone's been watching Jeopardy, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. It gets people's attention, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's such a juxtaposition, that's why. But it kind of stuck. Kind of stops the conversation, derails what you were trying to say sometimes. Well, in the same way, every once in a while, I love Paul this way as writing. He introduces a word that he never uses anywhere else, and there's no biblical writers using it anywhere else. And his, his point is to get people to stop and to realize wow, you're introducing something brand new here. The term that he uses here is actually one Greek word that's translated, learn the secret. Okay, learn the secret of being content. I've learned the secret. It's just one Greek word, and it's a word that's only used in uh, mysticism to describe someone being initiated into like a secret society. It's kind of like being initiated into a fraternity or into a lodge where you get the secret handshake and the passcode. You know what I mean? You're like, no, I have no idea. Right. So Paul grabs this word and he places it in this context and he essentially says here, he says, I have been initiated into this secret club of contentment. I've been initiated into this secret society and other people can come in, but not a lot of people know about it. And I've been initiated into this like secret club of contentment. And, and we're all going, so what, so what is it, Paul? What is the secret? Tell us. Because, Paul, before you were stuck in that prison, you were thrown out of towns and you were stoned, and this isn't even the first time you've been in jail, and you were shipwrecked, and you were bitten by poisonous snakes, and now you've been arrested and brought to Rome with no trial date in sight. How in the world can you be content with all that? What's the secret? And in the next verse, he tells us, and the next verse is one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. So if it's a famous verse in the Bible, you know I have a contrarian thing to say about it. So it's also perhaps one of the most misapplied verses in the Bible. This is one of those verses that you've heard it, you've seen it somewhere, and unfortunately it's become so pithy and cliched and, un- and people have pulled it way out of its context and applied it to all kinds of stuff. But the context for this verse is the Apostle Paul's summary of how you live with contentment in the waiting room, in the midst of circumstances beyond your control, in the midst of circumstances that are chaotic and uncertain and, un- and-, and changing and maybe even permanent. So are you ready? So tell us how, Paul. What's the secret to contentment? Verse 13. I can do all this. Stop. All what? If you go back and read the rest of this passage, he talks about rejoicing at all times. He talks about how to think about things that are pure and honest and true. He talks about, I've learned to be content. And then he says, I can do all of this. 
persecuted, run out of town, stoned, left for dead in the street, shipwrecked, beaten, abandoned by my friend, single, because no one wants to marry this. I mean, are you kidding? But I can do all this and remain faithful, and remain ethical, and remain moral, and resist temptation. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And literally, if I could add a word just for clarity, I'm going to add one word, and I'm going to, I plan to talk to Paul about this when I see him in heaven, but for now, I'm just going to add one word just to be clear. Through him who gives me his strength. I don't think I'm doing any disservice to what Paul's saying. Because Paul would later elaborate in other letters that he wrote to other churches that there's a mystery for Christians where the life of Jesus, the strength of Jesus, the endurance of Jesus is available to you and to me. I can do all this through him, through Christ who gives me his strength. So just to be clear, and perhaps this is being a bit critical, but I've got to unload a pet peeve. He was not talking about this. This is, this is a well-meaning cheerleading squad at a high school in East Texas, and you're like, oh, it's Texas, of course. But it is, it's right, it's in the Bible Belt. But this, this was actually, a whole court, this went to court, this whole deal. Crowd's all jacked up, team's about to run out on the field, and Paul's up in heaven going, really? <laughs> really, I'm not talking about winning a game. I'm not, that's not what I was talking about. You might have missed the point. I'm not talking about getting the ball across the goal line more times than the other team does. I'm talking about thriving in the midst of crushing circumstances. I'm not talking about a trophy. I'm not talking about a scoreboard. I'm not, determ- not talking about how determined I am and nobody's going to stop me and the crowd's going wild. This isn't Rocky, okay? I'm in prison. I'm rotting away. I'm awaiting trial where I'm sure I'm going to be found guilty of something and they'll put me to death because that's just the way the system works here. So this is not what I'm talking about. And this is cute. I mean, God love them, right? They're well-intentioned. Oh, and this isn't the only time scripture is used like this because I found a couple others in my Google search. There's this one. <laughs> Thanks be to God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> really? I, I don't think. I just don't think. And then this one also is a good one. If God's for us, you can be, of, of course, yes. That's used in the New Testament every time we can. Oh, man, it's slowing my heart rate down because this really bothers me. I like this one, too. I like this one, too. Uh, this, uh, actually, let's zoom in a little bit on that because you're probably seeing that this week, actually. That's uh, Steph Curry's uh, shoe. And again, well-intentioned athlete uh, in the NBA that I admire a lot for his, his life, but this is, not, this is not what Paul's talking about. Or this one, this one. You, yeah, and again, Tim Tebow, I, I, I admire him, but I just don't think this kind of stuff is what Paul's talking about. Just, you're like, Todd, lighten up about this. Like, what is, your, what is the deal? I'm telling you, I mean, here's why it matters to me. When you, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when you rip biblical truth out of context and you reduce it to a cliche that fits on the edge of your sneaker or on your eye black strip or you miss, yes, you miss the secret of contentment. When you reduce it to something that fits nicely on a bumper that fits nicely into the lyric of a song that will get airplay on Christian radio, you miss the significance of what Paul is actually saying. That's why it matters to me. 
When the world around me is spinning out of control and there's nothing I can do about it, when the only option I have is to do what little I can do while I sit here and, and wait, and maybe God will do something about my circumstances, maybe He won't, but I can thrive in my circumstances, I can maintain my integrity, I can maintain my morality, I can maintain my peace, and I can be content. Not because I am strong, but because He gives me His strength for that very purpose. So there, I feel better about that. Okay, let me, let me break this down um, and summarize it, and I'm going to give you a homework assignment, okay? Here's essentially what I'm saying. When it comes to the waiting room, this is the context, okay? I can't. He can. And he can through me. I can't, he can and he can through me. You don't get to apply this principle of Philippians 4.13 to everything in your life. It's not what it's meant for. He's talking about this, this you want to know the secret of contentment? This is it. This isn't about, man, I got a big day ahead of me, and I got all kinds of things, and I got stuff I got to do that I don't want to do, and I don't know if it's, I'm going to get it all done, but I can, I can, I got this, me and Jesus, because he gives me strength. Let's apply the Bible as it's meant to be applied. When it comes to the waiting room, I can't. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? And I'm not able, and I'm strong, and I'm educated, and I'm resilient, and I can figure it out, and I got an image, but when it comes to this deal that I'm facing, this thing that's got me stuck in the waiting room, I can't. There's nothing I can do. It's beyond me. I'm not going to pretend that I can. I'm not going to drum up some kind of temporary internal feelings and have some nice sayings and some cool posters and wall hangings and t-shirts and wristbands. I'm just going to admit right up front, I can't handle this. But Jesus can. And the reason I know Jesus can is because he dragged his own cross to the hill after he'd been beaten within an inch of his life and he died for me and for my sin. And when I get back, when I, get, when I kind of back up and get a little perspective on all of that, I realize that what I'm facing is nothing compared to that. So the Apostle Paul says, I can't, but he can. And more importantly, he can through me. So you're single and you're sick of tired of being single and you've tried being unsingle and that just made life more complicated and now you're in another season of life being single again and you're tired of this. And you and I both know there are options. Sometimes you lose track of the fact that there are options that are just going to complicate your life and probably prolong your waiting room experience. Some of you are nodding along. Been there. You can take initiative. You can take some things into your own hands make things happen, but you better be prepared for the complicated consequences on the other side of that decision. Oh, and since I've gone down this path and I'm, I'm unloading some uh, uh, pet peeves and dispelling some cliches and feel-good sayings that aren't rooted in Scripture at all, if you're single, it's not true that God simply wants you to be happy. I can't tell you how many times, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? <coughs> Maybe not. Here's the idea. Like, my idea of God comes from the Bible. I don't know where your idea of God comes from. So my idea of God needs to be rooted in what actually the revelation of God says about God. And I can't find that anywhere. It's not true that he has the right person picked out for you. <laughs> Except for you, Bill. Um, so... <laughs> 
Um, I don't know why you're just sitting there. I'm sorry. Um, just mind your own business. And it's like, I don't want anything to do with what you're saying right now. It's not true. It's just not true that Mr. Wright and Mrs. Wright is out there somewhere. It's not, again, you're like, but I've believed that my whole life. Well, that's nice for you, but it's not a biblical idea. It's not true that if you're patient in God's time, he'll bring the right person into your life. Who knows? Maybe he's already brought the right person into your life and you missed it because you were distracted by other things. Don't fall for this make-me-feel-better watered-down theology. An incorrect view of who God is and how God operates and what he has actually promised will only lead to disappointment with God. If you've ever been disappointed with God, it's probably rooted in an improper view of who he really is. Oh, and while I'm at it, let me just tell you exactly what God does want for you, because I'm really good at that too. He, wa <laughs> he wants you to experience what Paul experienced. He wants all of us to discover contentment. And contentment is so much bigger and so much deeper than happiness. But what about my right to pursue happiness? God bless America. If you're... Sorry, that bordered on sacrilegious. But if you're, if you're miserable in your marriage and you've done it, you don't see anything changing, and you've done what you know to do, and you've done what you've been counseled to do, and you're just trying to be the person God created you to be, and there's nothing changing in your marriage, and you've been in this particular waiting room for a long time, and it seems like there's just, this is just the way it is, and it's the way it's going to be. So God, doesn't God want me to be happy? How am I supposed to be happy in this marriage? Surely this isn't what God had in mind. I mean, I know what the Bible says, but people in the church get divorced and remarried all the time, so when is it my time? When do I get to be happy? That is the wrong question. Paul doesn't say a thing about happiness. He does talk about joy. Earlier in this chapter, he talks about contentment. And he didn't experience joy and contentment when he finally got out of prison. Because when he finally got out of prison, it was to be led off to be executed. Happy day. <laughs> Paul found joy in the secret of contentment in prison, in his years-long experience in the waiting room. I can't. He can. And he can through me. It's a mystery of Christ in us. You say, I don't think I understand this. I think Paul would say, I don't think I totally understand it either, and I certainly can't explain it very well, because it's a mystery. It's a mystery that creates a reality through which you can have contentment in the waiting room experiences of life. So here's your homework assignment. Because we only have so much time here, and I've used it all up for today, and there comes a point where you need to have an opportunity to interact with Scripture on your own, um, with the truths that we hear in this place. So in a minute, I'm going to put into your hands a little card, and here's what I want you to do. Uh, we're going to do this in a minute while we play some music. Uh, but this is your homework assignment. I think we should do this for a couple weeks, um, maybe until we're back here for part four in this series. So uh, in the morning, and this, this is what the card looks like, in the morning, the top part of the card, just make this your prayer. I can't, you can. Before your feet hit the floor, I can't, you can. Before I start my day, before I interact with anybody, I'm just going to acknowledge I can't, you can. Whatever your waiting room thing is, to acknowledge, I'm not going to change this today. I'm powerless. There's nothing I can do. And in light of that, I can't. 
And you can. When you go to bed at night, say this prayer at the bottom of the card. Teach me the mystery of Christ in me. And that's so weird, you know. It's like, God, Todd said this whole do-do-do-do thing and something about an initiation in a secret society, and I don't know what I've gotten myself into, but would you please, I guess, teach me the mystery of Christ in me. You know what I'm saying. This is how Paul put it. And he's like, I didn't know it automatically. It wasn't intuitive. I had no, I wasn't born with this in me. I, I had to learn this. So, so every morning, God, I just want to declare, I can't, you can In the middle of my waiting room experience, teach me the mystery of Christ in me. So that's the bottom line for this morning is simply this in the waiting room, to learn the secret of contentment. Thankfully, Paul actually gives us the secret. I can't, you can, and you can through me. I want to pray for you and I want to pray something very specific. Let's bow our heads. I want all of us to think about that thing in our lives that stirs our discontentment more than anything else. I mean, how long is it going to take you to think of that? You've already thought of it. You've been thinking about it all morning. And if you're used to any kind of self-evaluation, you're there already. It's that thing in your life that just won't change. It's that thing that isn't going to change. It's just the way it is. It's the way it's going to be. If you could press a button and change one thing in your life, this is the thing that you would change. Let me just say this about that thing. Whether it's a person or a relationship, or a job thing, or finances, or your kids, or an unfulfilled dream, whatever it is, that thing, listen, is the epicenter of where God has the greatest potential to do his greatest work in your life. It's Paul being in prison for an indefinite period of time that launched his writing ministry that changed the world. And you have no idea what God wants to do in you and through you in these waiting room circumstances. And right at the center of that is this thing that just stirs your discontentment. So I want you to think about that as I pray. Heavenly Father, most of us in this room have lived long enough to know that it's in the tension that you really do your greatest work. It's in the tension that you have the greatest opportunity. Because in the tension, in that weakness, that's where you get our attention. When we've come to the end of ourselves, it's where you get to demonstrate your strength. So God, give us eyes to see things the way you see them. This thing, this source of discontentment, this waiting room experience, give us your eyes to see it as you see it. And then teach us the secret of contentment. Right here. Right in my waiting room experience. Together we declare we can't. But you can. And you can. And you will and you want to through us. And in teaching us and us learning the secret of contentment, may you demonstrate your glory through us in ways that we could never imagine. Listen to this.